You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for an exciting new week here on May 6th. It is Monday. Uh, Hope you guys had a great weekend and enjoyed the El Stinco de Mayo festivities. Sorry we weren't together for El Stinco de Mayo. Today is El, uh, what is it? El Cese de Mayo. Um, But, you know, at some point, when our freedom of speech runs out, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to learn Spanish here. So I'm just trying to get in the swing. But anyway, I'm really excited to be back. As you might notice from my Twitter account, from maybe the tone of my voice, there is a little bit of a spring in my step because President Trump made a terrific decision yesterday in honor of El Cinco de Mayo. Now, look, I'm always accused of being too negative, being too down, um, looking at things glass half empty. So I figure today we're going to look at things glass half full. We're going to take a look at some good decisions, some good news, and then use them to demonstrate why this is a good opportunity on a number of fronts to fill up that glass and use the half glass full to make it as much as a full glass as we can. So obviously, as you well know, a big part of the problem for the first two years of this administration was the fact that DHS leadership stunk. We had really bad dudes in charge. Um, it is... I cannot understate the problems that we had from day one with General Kelly, Kirsten Nielsen, McAleenan as CBP commissioner under DHS secretary, and uh, Vitello as ICE director. I mean, just completely aimless or downright malignant in many in, in, in many cases. And as we've demonstrated before, there are times where this works out in a way that it's even worse than under the Obama administration. Because under the Obama administration, it was a well-oiled machine. Okay, very well-oiled machine um, where, you know, the White House had full control over the messaging and whatever they wanted at any given moment they would get. Right? I, I rarely remember mixed signals in that administration. So there were times where Obama wanted to get tough on certain aspects of immigration for different reasons, and he actually did, and he had that ability to do so. Whereas under Trump, because DHS is malignant, but because they also don't have control the same way the Obama administration did, 
So where they wanted to get tough, they often couldn't. I mean, you just have the news today or yesterday just just to set the tone for why I'm very, very much pumped about Trump's choosing of Mark Morgan to be ICE director. Look at this headline. John Kelly joins board of company operating largest shelter for unaccompanied migrant children. In April, protesters outside the nation's largest facility for unaccompanied migrant children noticed a familiar face enter the massive fenced site in Homestead, Florida. Former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. Soon after, a local television station recorded footage of him riding on the back of a golf cart as he toured the grounds. It wasn't clear why he was there, but Friday, Caliburn International confirmed to CBS News that Kelly had joined its board of directors. Caliburn is the parent company of Comprehensive Health uh, health services, which operates homestead and three other shelters for unaccompanied migrant children in Texas. Now, I'm just telling you that <laughs> I remember, you guys remember this, when he was chosen along with General Mattis for cabinet-level positions Mattis is as a, a defense secretary and Kelly as secretary of Homeland Security. Our side was like, oh man, look at it. Trump really picked great guys, these generals. And I said, look, you know, generals are generals. A lot of them these days are liberal and these guys just aren't good. And Kelly was just never with us. And now you see it's all, you know, he's joining the board of this shelter for unaccompanied alien children. And, you know, as we noted, most of these people are a bunch of MS-13 punks that are self-trafficked, engaged in illegal alien chain migration to, um, you know, to completely fleece us while empowering the cartels and smugglers. So, often it's not until they retire or they leave their position that you really see, man, these are the guys that we had all along. So a lot of people are asking me, well, who is this Mark Morgan guy? Some people are trying to look into his resume like, oh, I don't know. He seems like some career bureaucrat. I don't know, Daniel. Oh, he served in the Obama administration. Now, look, I mean, every time, you know, usually I'm criticizing personnel choices and people say, oh, I'm too tough. Now I say he's a good one and people are questioning it. The reality is, obviously, as you well know, I'm coming to this analysis from a personal point of interest. And I'm quite open about it. As you know, I had Mark on the show several times, quoted him in my articles. And, you know, we would speak every few days over the last number of months about this immigration crisis. So every, pretty much everything I've said on this show, the last number of months, we've talked about. (laughs) I talked about with him on the phone. Strategy, messaging, if you remember a lot of his testimony that he delivered before the um, Senate Homeland Security Committee about a month ago, April 4th, included a lot of our ideas, a lot of our points. If you'll remember, he had a line in there how Baltimore has a higher um, homicide rate than El Salvador. 
<laughs> so you'll recognize where that came from. So clearly, if there's a guy that loves my work and and uses it, uses it on his TV appearances, is very much of that mindset. So I'm obviously going to be very supportive of him. Here's a guy I think we could work with. Now, just so you know about Mark, the first thing that impressed me about him was the fact that you know he he was border chief when Trump came in. Right, real briefly, he was a career FBI guy. He had experience in El Paso and LA running gang task forces, really understands MS-13 and really understands the psyche of Central American teens, which is very important. But he he had some senior executive positions at the FBI for a number of years, and then he became border chief in 2016, and Trump fired him. So th- this was an example a couple times. You know, many places they kept Obama holdovers, which was a problem. Ironically, here you had a good guy, and they fired him because he was an Obama holdover. Now, it's important to know that there was a little bit more um, complexity to this, just the fact that Brandon Judd, the head of the Border Patrol Union, wanted him canned because the Border Patrol Union just hated his guts simply because he was a career FBI guy. He never served in Border Patrol, and that was a big thing to them. They were just bothered by it, and I get it. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. There's nothing wrong with Mark, um, and also everyone just hates the FBI. Everyone hate everyone in every other law enforcement agency, um, federal or state. They hate the FBI. So you know they didn't like him. But at the end of the day, what happens when someone is typically fired by a president administration? Well. Hell has no fury like a scorned or fired bureaucrat, okay? I mean, they get to go straight on the liberal talk shows and just trash that administration. Rather than doing that, Morgan graciously came out and said, look, you know, I I served under Obama, and Trump is absolutely right. You know, we need to build a wall and yada, yada. And it's important to know that when he started doing that, he wasn't vying for a job. And and even when I got to know him, which was a little bit afterwards, he never dreamt of serving this position because Ron Votello, was, the acting chief, was he had a pending nomination before the Senate. Very lackluster guy, but he was going to be the guy. So, I mean, he was never vying for any position. Suddenly, we have a domino effect where the three top positions at DHS are at least related to immigration, DHS secretary, CBP commissioner, and ICE director become open. So the moment that became open a couple of weeks ago, Morgan then wanted the position. So A, I was just impressed by the fact that you know he was gracious about it. Um, through all my time speaking with him, I'm just struck by the fact that the guy just doesn't give a darn. He has no political aspirations. He's not a very flashy guy that could really get too far beyond this, and he's not looking to do that. He wants to just get in there, 
for a relatively short period and make deportations great again. He understands the severity of the problem at the border. He understands where it's coming from. He understands, as he said in his congressional testimony, that our nation is at a crossroads. That's the term he used. What was amazing is the other witnesses and some of the senators there was all about, oh, the push factors in Guatemala and this and that, what we need to do to help them. And he was like, wait a minute, we're a sovereign nation. It's our policies that are the problem. It's the magnets. You need to cut off the magnets. You need to start deporting Central Americans. And if you think about it, if, you, if you've taken to heart a lot of the things we've reported on the last number of months, certainly the last few weeks, you can make the case that ICE director is even more important than CBP commissioner in stopping the, 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 flaw, the flow at the border, even though you think, well, you know, the border isn't that border patrol. But, I mean, sadly, and, and, and this is not a hit at Border Patrol, it's just the reality, Border Patrol has just become a bunch of busboys. I mean, just like a bunch of stewards for catch and release. ICE still has a lot of the keys to cutting off the magnets. It's all about interior enforcement. But it's not just interior. Remember, they're at the border, too. They're the ones responsible for housing and eventually any deportation in airlift. Remember, we keep talking about the fact that we need an airlift. So I could tell you on a deep level, Mark understands all this stuff. I love how in his testimony, if you remember, Mark got up there and said, hey, they're not all bad coming, but let's be intellectually honest. They're not all good. You know, everyone else is like, oh, the migrants are, oh, they're, they're, they're great people, but we just, you know, we're worried about the cartels. We don't want to empower anyone. No. And he was the one who originally gave me that quote for my article, and then he said it in the testimony, how when he was doing MS-13 work at FBI and then later when he was Border Patrol chief, when he would tour these facilities with the unaccompanied Central Americans, so-called unaccompanied, he said, I looked in their eyes and I saw hardened young men and future gang members. He totally gets the criminal element. He totally gets the need to ramp up deportations. Again, some of this I'm speaking a little out of turn. You're not going to find this as a source anywhere. It's on a personal level. I'm not going to divulge personal conversations, but um, he fully gets that. He fully gets the need to expand expedited removal and be an advocate for that. He fully understands the courts. He even said that in his testimony, out-of-control courts. He used very strong language that they rarely use in t- congressional testimony. So all the elements that we need to ramp up expedited removal. If you remember, we were the ones to break the news on how many people are in this country with final deportation orders that have yet to be deported. And we broke down the countries. over About 1.1 million, about 500,000 from Central America, about 50,000 from countries with terrorism ties. Notice that was in his testimony, too, in all of his appearances, along with Tom Homan, too. I mean, the two of them are very close. They've been all over the media saying that there is a need to begin deporting those people. Until now, ICE is so obsessed with this image about, oh, you know, we have to just deport you know, those with other criminal convictions or criminal record. And, and that's certainly true. You want to get out the really bad guys. 
But the problem is that right now we have a gushing flow at the border and there is utility in taking numerous number of these Central American families and deporting them. Not just in terms of getting out the malignant actors inside of America. Yeah, you know, based on that account, you would, you know, start prioritizing those that are the most dangerous. But if you want to stop the gushing flow as well, there is utility to diverting resources just towards deporting even those without criminal records. So they see nobody is safe from that, and, and you're not going to stay here indefinitely. He has articulate, articulated that very boldly. So that's that's solid. And again, the fact that he recognizes that a lot of these kids are punks He's going to go after them. And, 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 and th- there's another very important aspect to this. We've had long conversations about this, and I've mentioned a little bit on my show. There's a major problem at ICE in that there's two, ag- there's two divisions within ICE that a lot of people don't even know about. Most people think of ICE as what is called ERO, Enforcement and Removal Operations. Those are the guys that deport, detain to deport. But there is another aspect of it called HSI, Homeland Security Investigations. And they're basically, basically what happened was when DHS was created and they created these various agencies by merging, dividing, conquering, they put the the element of the old INS that did deportations together with customs, former customs agents. And Customs took a look at this and like, we don't want to do immigration. That's Schlepper's work. Ew. I don't want to do we want to, we're 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 uh agents. We want to do investigations. So what they did is to placate them, they took the former customs officers and they made them they said, Okay, you guys want to play FBI, we're gonna create HSI. So you'll you'll be under ICE, but you're gonna do investigations for you know, like criminal alien crimes. And that sounds nice. But the reality is, as we've noted, we have an FBI. We have a DEA, which deals with all the drugs, which is all criminal alien at the end of the day. So they waste their time going after counterfeit this and weird these weird things that are either superfluous, you have the FBI doing it, or frankly, as we've noted, we don't need to investigate criminal alien crimes like you do with Americans. You need to deport illegal aliens, and then you don't have the problem. But they don't want to do that work, so there's a, there's tremendous problems. A lot of people don't know about this. The HSI was threatening to secede last year or something, or two years ago. There's tremendous acrimony, and it's draining off resources. Remember, remember. ICE in totality, which includes HSI, has fewer agents than NYPD. And they are national in scope. If you know, I am one of the strong advocates to suggest that this is not, in general, the immigration issue is a policy problem, both policy from the executive branch and the courts, not a resource problem, but that's mainly when it comes to border patrol. We don't need more border agents. We really don't. It's policy changes. 
But we do, at least temporarily, we do need more ICE agents. Because of the net effects of all these bad policies over the years, there's so much garbage we've let in. We just need just raw bodies to, to, to deport. So he wants to marshal HSI into real immigration work. To busting up MS-13, the UACs that are problematic. So um, he is he is all about that. So that's what he wants to do. So I just wanted to give you a little bit about him and why I'm I'm so excited. Anyway, there weren't too many other people vying for this position that I knew of. Now, you might ask me the next logical thing is, okay, well, isn't he going to be working for McAleenan? Okay, he's ICE director, but ultimately isn't the DHS secretary the guy in charge? Now, look, one of the things that is good about Mark is that a lot of you, if you didn't know any better from me, you'd think, yeah, I don't know, he's some FBI guy. Like, who is this guy? He served in the Obama administration a little bit. Um, now, I just want to want you to keep in mind, he wasn't CBP director, a commissioner. He was Border Patrol chief. A lot of you might not realize that that is not a Senate confirmation position. So he wasn't like, it's not like he he was an Obama crony or something. No, I mean, he was a lifelong, I mean, he's a conservative. Um, I don't know his views on every other issue, but it doesn't matter um, because I know where he is on this issue and that's, that's what ICE director is. And, you know, he was just, it was a, believe it or not, it's a bureaucratic position, Border Patrol chief. It's the CBP commissioner who's uh, appointed by the Senate. So, you know, you, we usually think like ICE and Border Patrol are on par with each other, but it's not true. It's ICE and CBP. They're Senate confirmation level positions. So the thing is, Mark is the guy I know who has the best views on this, but there's no paper trail really. Not much of a paper trail. So he should be able to get confirmed. He's a law enforcement guy, FBI guy. Kind of like my same contention with a point or my, my the, the, the part of the reason why I think it's a good idea to appoint Stephen McGraw, the head of Texas DPS as DHS secretary, because I think he's he'll be as good or almost as good as Kobach, but he'll be able to get confirmed because he's all law enforcement. He's not political. Now, look, I would still love to have Kobach. I'm just telling you, it's a reality. He will not be confirmed. I'm not going to write that publicly because I don't want to strengthen the hand of those who are trying to emphatically warn he's not going to get confirmed. But I'm just telling you, these people are driven by identity politics. People like Cornyn and Scott, Scott let alone you know Lamar Alexander, Rob Portman. I, 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 look, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets fewer than 15 votes. So I still think there is some way to get him as like an immigration czar, assuming the president would empower him to make the decisions, and then it doesn't need Senate confirmation. That's that's what I think is the best position for him. Um, but yeah, we still need to work every day to push McAleenan out. But with that said, I think if there's anyone who has the respect to go up against him, you know, where McAleenan might initially at least respect his resume, it would be a guy like Morgan. So, um, you know, that, that is his singular focus. So that, that, that is the first 
good piece of news. Now, other there's several other good things I want to point out. Number one, it looks like they are finally getting around to promulgating the rule on public charge that anyone, any immigrant who is a public charge is inadmissible or deportable. Now, you might say, well, isn't that current law? Yeah, it is current law. Um, but, you know, it, it's taken forever. And unlike unlike the birthright citizenship thing, which was just a trial balloon that never came true, hopefully this one looks like it will. Now, I'm hearing it might have been watered down, so I have to find a little bit more about it, but I just wanted you guys to know about that. Another important one is um, going after Social Security fraud. This was one of the big things I, I said that the administration should work to see anytime there's a no match on Social Security numbers to go after them. And that would really dry up a lot of the problems. So there's something called no match letters where they warn employers that their employees claim social security numbers are suspect, meaning they'll see a duplicative number or some other anomaly <clears throat> somewhere. And, um, you know, we always did that. Obama stopped it. And now <clears throat> the Trump administration is going to continue it. Again, you know, I'm trying to go glass half full. Um, this is a way to really choke it off because, like I said, if we can go after identity theft, that's really the linchpin to everything. So, um, usually they cooperate and fire them. You know, if the government initially they, they're not going to care, but if the government calls them up and says, "Hey, you have a no match." It's pretty hard for them to screw with that. Democrats are yelping about it, but you know the National Immigrant Law Center put out a thing. No match letters are nothing more than a pernicious scare tactic that confuse employers and make workers less secure in their employment. <laughs> well, it certainly does. It makes their workers less secure. Um, the administration risks severe disruption to the economy with this action. So that that's another good action I wanted to point to on immigration. So I think we're getting there. We're getting there slowly but surely. I want to point that out. But again, we have to make sure that these aren't one-offs, that it's part of a broad and consistent and relentless momentum to follow and assert current law in all aspects. Because until now, part of the problem is we've always taken one step forward and two steps back. Mark Morgan's a good guy, but you know, just one guy is head of ICE. There's a lot you can do, as I'm pointing out. ICE is really the linchpin to a lot of this. But you know, you gotta have all aspects of the administration on board. You have to have your litigation, your your strategy with the courts more aggressive. Obviously, you gotta get McAleenan out of there. And yes. You need to assert the shutoff. This is the time for the president to do it. My concern is any day now, it's it's May 6th, either today, tomorrow, or one day this week, they're going to publish the April border numbers, and we're going to all be, oh, it blew out even March, with blue, which blew out February, which blew out January. 
But we become desensitized. What's happening now is that Overton window is moving. It's becoming normal now. It's the new normal. And the more the president sits and allows this to be done, the more it becomes normal and it's going to be like, hey, why are you reacting now? So at some point, he's got to draw that line in the sand. He needs the shutoff. No matter what, he needs the shutoff. There is no shortcut around that. Let me explain why there's no shortcut, why this is never going to end, and it's a bottomless pit. So anyway, you have this news. It was first, just want to give credit. Um, Where is this? It was in the Daily Caller first, so I just want to make sure, give them credit to where I saw this story, Um, but they got it from a Spanish-language paper that a third of Guatemala's population would like to come to the U.S. Okay? So this is from Presna Libre, Guatemala City paper, and this was a study uh, conducted by the Association for Research and Social Studies and Bar Metro de, de las Americas survey of 15, almost 1,600 Guatemalans published last Thursday. 39.2% of all natives living there would express the desire to migrate, 85% of them to the United States. So if you do the math, that's about 33.2 or so, almost exactly a third. Now, That means that if you take Guatemala's population of about 17 million, that means 5.6 million would like to come here. And those are the ones there, meaning a lot have already come here. According to census data, we've had, we have in this country roughly... What is it, 850,000, 815,000? And that was as of 2018. So I didn't do the math, but I mean, how many Guatemalans have come? There's several hundred thousand have come in. Meaning this is before the surge. So we're easily over a million Guatemalans already here. And 5.6 million would like to come. Okay? So keep in mind, so that's that's just one country. Now they didn't I didn't see a survey on other countries. But if we were to assume that Honduras and El Salvador would have roughly the same population expressing the same desire, that would be another 10.7 million people. So when you, if you think like, oh man, you know, gosh, 100, 115, 130,000 every month coming, I mean, it's got to slow down. No, I mean, if we don't stop this, it will not end. And then as I've noted, those are just three countries. <clears throat> if, if if the world sees that we empty out their population to America, I mean, you, you already have Nicaragua, Haiti, and Cuba coming in pretty large numbers. And then, you know, all sorts of countries from Africa, the Middle East coming in smaller numbers, but, you know, steadily increasing. There's no limit. But the money quote here in this survey 
is that 58% of respondents said they had relatives in the United States. 58% have relatives here. Right? Because we have at least a million in America. They already have relatives here. And that's the point. What this demonstrates is what I've long said for so many years. I've had to deal with not just on the left, but these pseudo conservatives, just like you have like jailbreak conservatives on conservatives for criminal justice reform. You have the same thing with the open borders, you know, conservative type of people that aren't conservative, libertarians, whatever. They say that, look, you know, I'll tell you why they're coming here because we have a broken legal immigration system. Now, when they say broken, they mean in a very different way than you and I would mean it. They say it's broken. We don't have enough legal immigration, so they're forced to come here illegally. And until you fix that, they're going to keep coming. And the joke is, I said, look, the period of time in our country where we had the most illegal immigration was precisely coinciding with the period where we had the most legal immigration. Moreover, the countries of origin from which we've had the most illegal immigration, namely Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, are the countries where we've had the most legal immigrants. Okay? Heck, we have a tremendous amount of legal immigrants from China. And there's there's a big, big, big increase of them from the border. Where don't you find illegal immigrants from? Iceland, France, Luxembourg. Okay? Meaning the point is, it's the exact opposite. When you have an irresponsible, unbalanced legal immigration system where you just flood your country with legal immigrants through chain migration, diversity, visa lottery, and other things. You don't have a merit-based system, and you have a phenomenon in the world the last two generations since the 1970s of people from the third world coming for economic reasons not to become part of the American experience. Again, there always still are people, individuals that do, but in large numbers, and you open your country to that without any filter, then once they have their relatives here, they all want to come. So they bring them in, but if it's not quick enough through the legal avenues of chain migration, they'll, they'll come illegally. They want, to, they want to come. It's the exact opposite. You can never bring in enough to satiate it because there's an endless number. Because simply put, why wouldn't you want to come to America where you could both get a low-paying job, but it's a lot higher than where you are, but then also be eligible for birthright citizenship and and um, and welfare. Why wouldn't you? I understand it. It's very logical. Okay? That is why we've had record amounts of illegal immigration from the countries where we've basically dominated. And it, you know, it's also culturally, because then they could have the best of all worlds. Meaning, I don't know if you're, um, let me just say, if you're from Finland, okay. Among many other reasons why you wouldn't be pushed to come here. I don't know. There aren't that many Finnish communities. So, you know, you're not you know prone to come here where you could say like, Hey, you know, I could get the benefits of America, but retain my culture. But because we've already had so much, from Mexico and Central America and just, I mean, think about it. According to Pew, 
50% of all immigrants since 1965 have come from Latin America. Most of that being just four countries. Certainly if you had in Cuba there. So, yeah, I mean, of course they're going to come. You have your culture already here. You have your communities already here. You have your relatives already here. And then you got the economics. And as they note in this article from Presna Libre, I just did Google Translate to kind of to, to read through it. Sorry, my Spanish is not up to snuff yet. But um, they they note that they're all coming for poverty and economics and for jobs. There's been a 28-fold increase in Central Americans since 1970. We had 118,000 Central Americans in this country in 1970. Now we have 3.3 million. And again, that was as of 2018. Now we have about 4 million. So, um, oh, and by the way, so 28-fold increase, that's six times faster than the overall immigrant population. We've had a lot of immigration, six times faster. So we've given these countries a monopoly over our immigration system. That's why they come illegally too, because they can. That's the joke of this all. So, I just want to, and I'm going to try to put this on paper, put it out as an article. But I just want to do the math with you. If you just look at these three countries and you would extrapolate and say roughly a third, you know, we only have a poll from Guatemala, but let's say, let's just assume it's the same from El Salvador and Honduras. It would, it would mean that roughly 10.7 million people want to come here. And here's my question to all those with pseudo, pseudo morals about our obligations to other people, but not Americans. So here's my question. We've estimated that the price tag is about 140. I have two questions. Let's do the first one. We've estimated the price tag per immigrant from uh, using the methodology of Stephen Camerato, Center for Immigration Studies, would be about 140 to 150,000 per person, their net lifetime cost. Now, let me just tell you that is a very low number for a number of reasons. But one of them being that his concoction, his formulation was for the general flow of illegal immigration, which at the time was increasingly Central American, but it still was majority Mexican. And as much as Mexicans are low, you know, low educated, relatively low educated, they're higher educated than these ones coming from Central America. So assuming education translates into you know, wealth and, and earnings, which it usually does, and, and that's part of this methodology – the numbers would be much higher, but I'm just going to use the baseline of what he has in there. If you do 140, 150,000 times 10.7 million, that's a cost of about 1.5, 1.6 trillion. Okay, I mean, has anyone considered that? Like, where I'd like to know how much is too much? Where's the end? But, the, but there's another point I want to bring out as well. I took a look, you know, because again, they're they're coming. Clearly, why do a third of the people in Guatemala want to come here? Well, because it's it's all economic. So this whole asylum thing is a fraud. Okay, that let's just establish that. Let's put that myth to to, to rest tonight. 
But you take a look, and there's many measures. I'm just going to pick one. GDP per capita. Okay? It's 4,471 in Guatemala. It's a little bit lower in Honduras and El Salvador. There are 88 nations where the per capita GDP is lower than that of Guatemala. I want you to think about that for a moment. There's 88 nations where it's even lower. And there's nothing about, you know, Guatemala's level that makes that the cutoff for migration. It's likely a little bit higher than that where they'd still be willing and desiring to come here. You know, um, if you if you make the cutoff at I don't know, seven thousand, then you're talking about I don't know, 115 countries or so. Now, I haven't done the math because you'd have to add up the population of all those countries, and I just don't have the time for that. I mean, I could safely say it's well over a billion people. So my question is, if everyone's like, I don't understand, any economic migrant who wants to come here, we have to let them in. So my question is, don't we then have an obligation to land boats? Shouldn't we land boats in any country that has a GDP per capita below, let's say, $5,000 per person or so, 80, 100 countries, land boats and say, all who want, come in. You ain't laugh at that, but the truth is, I certainly don't support that. But if, if you subscribe to this, this would actually be a better way than the status quo because at least you would cut out the cartels and the smugglers and stop giving them billions of dollars and all the hardship and rape and pain and stuff that goes on the way. At least you just bring them in. But that's what it would take. It's a bottomless pit. You would have to be willing to offer about a billion people status. So why should it just be the ones that happen to successfully pay a smuggler? What, so they're better off? They have more of a claim, more of an entitlement to come here? Really? That's the moral hazard of this whole thing. It makes no sense. And by the way, just I want to get back to the first thing we said with Mark Morgan. One of the things that Mark recognizes on his own, and he's mentioned this in some of his um, uh, some of his interviews as well as the testimony. So a lot he actually makes the point I'm making. A lot of people are like, "Well, you know, there's not enough, you know, opportunity," and he's like, "Wait a minute, we let in a million." over a million people per year on green cards. Almost another million more on visas, long-term visas. You're telling me this isn't enough? And somehow we owe more people at the border? He's made this case. So, you know, part of the problem we've had, what really separates the men from the boys are the ones that get this. A lot of them will be like, okay, illegal immigration is bad. But we need more legal immigration. Or, you know, they'll, but no, I mean, not all legal immigration in terms of origin, numbers, and type are good. I mean, it depends. It's like like we've explained many times. Mark has expressed that, and that, that's what I really like. I'm really, really very happy with that. Um, so this is uh this is good stuff. 
And I just wanted you to know that's that's another advantage of Mark I forgot to mention. And by the way, one other thing with that, I really think another opportunity for the next ICE director um, is he needs to be an information clearinghouse to the public. So one of the things investigative journalists like to do is to like, you know, get get in the crawl of ICE. Oh, look what ICE is doing. They're doing this. I would be very transparent. And if I were him, I would I would promise transparency and say, look, we're going to inform- uh, release all sorts of data. All the stuff we spoke about last week, how every day Americans are killed by illegal aliens and we never know about this. ICE, there's no reason... They have these internal policies where they can't release information unless you request, and even when I request it, they can't release a lot of things. It's it's none of that's in the law. It's all nonsense. He needs to change that. That is a big thing. I mentioned it to him. Um, these uh, these policies concerning information, not even just operations of what they're doing, but just that the American people should know the extent of of the crime from illegal aliens. They could put that out every year, every year. How many illegal aliens committed murder or were arrested for murder? Okay. Let's, let's just say that they should have that number. I mean, cause they should have every case where an illegal commits murder. They should have an ice detainer on that person. You know, the whole issue is, a lot of the ones that go on to commit murder, they missed for the so-called lower-level crimes. They're like, oh, but once it comes to that, we should at least have that information. Instead, we have on the back end how many they apprehend to deport. Those are the ones that usually serve time, so it's not from that year. Because that would finally put to rest this notion that they commit less crime when they actually commit a lot more crime. So that number needs to be put out. And all this information needs to be put out. I want to change gears here. Um, the 2020 elections. But you probably think I'm talking about the presidential election. No, I'm talking about the primaries for the Senate elections. Look, we all know Democrats control the House, lock, stock, and barrel. People want Republicans to take it back. But Republicans officially have control of the Senate, but they don't. Count how many conservatives are in the Senate. Five, 10, 15 at most. Count how many conservative leaders are in the Senate. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if there's a single one left. If you take a look at the number of rhinos or seats being vacated, thankfully a couple of them are retiring, Mike Enzi announced his retirement. We got to get a guy there. We cannot have someone like Liz Cheney take her place. You got Shelly Moore Capito from West Virginia, John Cornyn from Texas, Lamar Alexander, he's retiring, but that, that seat there's an opportunity from Tennessee, Mike Grounds from South Dakota, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma, Tom Tillis from North Carolina, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, Pat Roberts from Kansas, he's also retiring, and Dan Sullivan from Alaska. These are all st- all states that Trump carried last election. Trump's on the ballot. Most of them he carried significantly, some of them more narrowly, like North Carolina, but significantly Wyoming, West Virginia, 
He won every county. Tennessee. Where there's such a small effort, where is the movement to get conservatives to even run for these seats? Whether they're open or to challenge these guys. So there's one other seat that is a Democrat seat that is a give me. And that's Alabama. As you all know, because of the anomalies of what happened last time, to this day, I'm very clear that it, it, it appears now that based on everything we know and what we see, that it was probably crap made up about Roy Moore. But nonetheless, you know, the guy was incapable of talking himself out of a plastic bag. I mean, that was the problem. He couldn't even do media to defend himself. And, you know, as, that certainly doesn't make him culpable for it. It's just you, you got to have a guy that could articulate his positions if we want them to be useful to our cause. So, you know, personally, my, my view is to, to sit this one out. But this clown, Doug Jones, is dead on arrival. Trump on the ballot in Alabama, he's gone. Jeff Sessions really wanted him to run. He's not going to run. I want you guys to know, and this is another thing that's a little bit personal with a full disclaimer. So a man named Arnold Mooney... From, he's a state rep, a state legislature, um, long time involved in conservative politics there, is running for Senate. Until now, all you really had there was Bradley Byrne, typical establishment guy. He's got like a 49% liberty score, big spender, establishment guy, leadership guy. He'll, he'll say the right things on immigration because anyone in Alabama has to, but will never lead on anything, and that's in the House. You put him over into the Senate, and you really, really think, really, really think that <laughs> that this guy is going to get better, not worse. You know how the Senate works. I mean, think about Marsha Blackburn. I mean, she was solid in immigration in the House. I mean, I forgot there was something on immigration that I found downright problematic that she said, but it's like... Very weak. I mean, she. I, I don't know what she's doing. Okay? So, a guy like Bradley Byrne is not going to cut it. And conservatives had no choice. Sessions is not running. Mo Brooks said he's not running. So, Mo Brooks on a radio show, I don't think it's written anywhere, but uh, Dale Jackson has a radio show. Those of you who are from Alabama will know this. Um, has endorsed... Arnold Mooney. Who is Arnold Mooney? Arnold is the father of Gaston Mooney. He helped co-found Conservative Review before it grew into CRTV and then merged with Blaze Media. Um, he helped co-found it with me. Um, he is currently um, he is currently the president. So full disclosure, he is obviously his son. And again. A lot of this is personal, and I'm going to tell you if I have a relationship with someone and I know them, I'm going to have a read on them, and I'm going to have an opinion. So it's it's nothing more than that. Otherwise, I would I wouldn't know him from Adam. And I've gotten to know Arnold a little bit over the years. We would talk about Alabama politics when it became relevant, and I needed information. And I'll tell you, this is a type of guy that really really knows things. Obviously, Gaston worked for um, Jim Dement in the Senate before he came over to Conservative Review. 
Now, you don't see much of a byline. He's more the business aspect of it, but he certainly knows a lot about politics. He worked in the Senate. His dad has been a staple in Alabama politics for many years, worked for an old conservative senator from there. He was in the state legislature the last couple of years. And, um, you know, unless something changes, this is the type of guy I think we want to look at. So I'm going to try to get him on the show. And again, full disclaimer, you know, so no, no one says, oh, oh, this is an inside thing. Now, nothing to do with anything. I mean, he is the father of the president of, you know, CR. And, you know, it's that simple. We're going to be open about that. So that is another good piece of news because, frankly, there aren't too many conservative candidates anywhere, anytime, running for anything. So um, that is that is one piece of news. Just wanted you guys to be aware of it. Now, jumping back to immigration again, I have to like you know get my stuff in a row here. One of the things I am a little bit upset about is. You know, so on the one hand, the Trump administration is being good when it comes to going after social security fraud with these ag workers and low-skilled workers, these companies that hire illegals. But, you know, this is from the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Administration backs plan for more visas for seasonal workers. The Trump administration is moving ahead to allow an additional 30,000 seasonal workers to return to the U.S. this summer, a higher-than-expected number that reflects internal tensions in the White House's approach to legal immigration. A rule to issue the extra visas known as H-2Bs to foreign workers who have held them in the past was cleared last week by the White House's Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. Folks, when you see as we've spoken about the last couple of weeks, this fundamental social transformation of rural areas. It sounds great, cheap labor. Now, a lot of my allies in this business talk a lot about wages and depressing wages, and I agree mostly on that issue. But, I mean, to me, that's not even the point. That's not even the point. What about the security problems? When you bring in helter-skelter, whether they're illegal or you do it legally with low-skilled workers from the third world, and you bring them in large numbers, cluster them in almost like dormitory conditions without families, carte blanche brought into rural areas. Not all of these are in rural areas, but I'm saying it's particularly bad when they do it there. It's a recipe for disaster in terms of crime, security issues, and culture. Those of you who live in these areas know exactly what I'm talking about. Turn places in Kansas and Nebraska into hellholes that were you know, once Norman uh, Rockwell towns. And, you know, again, like uh, Jessica Vaughn said in our show from that sheriff in Virginia, rural Virginia in the Shenandoah, we love these guys during the day. They work very hard. We got the problems at night the drug trafficking, the drunk driving. No one ever factors that into the equation. And again, I think if we had more ICE information out on this, if people would see what we report on here, we'd get a different story and a different perspective. America is more 
than a spreadsheet of economic beam counting for cheap labor. You got to look at the whole picture. I understand cheap labor. I get it. <laughs> but you got to look at the full picture. If importing the third world, you know, would be the key to prosperity, we would have done that a long time ago. Why didn't anyone think of such a brilliant idea? So that's the story with that. Again, we got to make sure they're consistent. You see there's this schizophrenic thing. So it's like, all right, Jared, you're more into this. You'll get your piece of the pie there. Stephen Miller, you'll get your piece of the pie here. We, they got to be consistent. Otherwise, one thing undermines the next. One bad decision undermines one good decision. So I certainly want to praise any good decision. But we can't lose sight of the fact that this is not like some sort of uh, score, you know, scoreboard. It's got to be a full, concerted, consistent effort. One other good piece of information out of ICE, speaking of which, this is from Stephen Dynan of the Washington Times. Good guy, by the way. Um, ICE, the Federal Deportation Agency, announced a new program Monday designed to give police a way to cooperate in turning over illegal immigrants, even if they're limited by slim budgets or local sanctuary policies. Local law enforcement won't be involved in asking about legal status or citizenship, but will have permission to detain someone for up to 48 hours to give ICE a chance to take custody. The Warrant Service Office program piggybacks on another program that already exists to train local police to enforce immigration law known as 287G. Right, So this is going to be more of a, a light version of it for those that don't have the political will or the budget. The WSO requires less training and the local officers won't actually begin the deportation process. Instead, the WSO is an agree- agreement to simply hold targets for pickup under the ICE warrant itself. So this is this is good stuff. Um, Pinellas County Sheriff, that's an important jurisdiction in Florida, um, became the first to sign on, and um, you know they're going to make the plan available nationwide. But Florida appears to be ground zero with sheriffs showing particular interest. Guess what? That's likely the leadership of Ron DeSantis. So I think this is another good aspect, another good sign to getting people out. Because remember, we talked about the problem of a lot of these communities that they won't necessarily harbor them, but they don't actively seek out their immigration status. And that's how you have so many terrible people that remain in this country get let out on bail, you know, time served. And they come, uh, go on to, to commit more crimes. So again, there's a lot of good stories out, and I, and I want to highlight them where I think they are meaningful. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're you know head fakes. But again, even the good news, it could get countermanded by other problems. You know what I mean? You, you, you can't... This is what Elijah told the servants of, of Baal on Mount Carmel, or more accurately said to, to, to the Jews who are going after the, the, the Baal, how much longer are you going to straddle the fence? 
straddle both sides. If you're with God, go to him. If you're with Baal, go to him. So I'm going to do an open borders thing one day and a sovereignty thing another day. You know what I mean? Like, look, I'm thankful for it. I'm just saying, like, you know, it's got to be consistent. So look, for today, in the spirit of being more conciliatory today, we're going to say, awesome, glass half full. Now, let's work to fill up the rest of the glass. And that is what we will be doing for the rest of the week on a number of issues. I want to get to what's going on in Israel, Iran, oil sanctions, Iran orchestrating this attack on Israel, 700 rockets, um, how that ties into our security. We might have some special guests on the show. We are just getting started, but we're pumped for this new week. I'm actually in a good mood for for once, so (laughs) take it while it lasts. Anyway, thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 